Welcome back, everyone, to part two of my conversation with Stephanie Krauss, the author of a new book called Whole Child, Whole Life. This is your host, Ken Fiedernick. And in part one of this episode, Stephanie explained why educators and parents are wise to be thinking beyond the academic development of children and to be thinking about the whole child. And she offers a number of practical things they can do to promote what is commonly referred to now as children's social emotional learning. Welcome back, Stephanie. I'm so glad to be back, Ken. Stephanie, at the end of part one, I quoted Frederick Hess from the American Enterprise Institute, who wrote that SEL is often, quote, an excuse for a blue bubbled industry of education funders, advocates, professors, and trainers to promote faddish nonsense and ideological agendas. He goes on to say, should parents be concerned about SEL? Well, look, if you're getting sensible notes from the principal suggesting that teachers are making a concerted effort to promote tolerance, cultivate relationship skills, and encourage better decision-making, that's generally a terrific thing, Hess says. But if school SEL missives are dotted with talk of microaggressions and implicit bias, Parent-teacher night features a pitch for eyebrow-raising disciplinary strategies or classrooms are cluttered with feeling thermometers and privilege maps. I'd say concern is in order. Now I want to play the audio clip we heard from part one of this episode. Social-emotional learning is the latest craze that is taking over our education across this country. This is Jennifer McWilliams from an organization called Purple for Parents Indiana. It is a curriculum that schools are adopting to shift the school culture and educate what they call the whole child. They assume the role of parents, essentially by using brainwashing techniques and role-playing to teach children how to think and feel about life. These programs are designed to influence our children's behavior in the name of social justice. And these activities desensitize our children to accept all ideas and lifestyles as normal, regardless of what family morals they may have. These are some pretty strong concerns people are raising about social emotional learning and what you've written about. What are your thoughts? It makes me think about this book that I read, uh, Switch, by Chip and Dan Heath years ago. And they talk about how um, this is, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but lack of clarity can breed confusion and too much confusion can breed contempt. And I feel like that is so much what has happened here, which is that we have always known parents, teachers, coaches, counselors, other people who are raising and working with kids, that kids don't only develop cognitively, they also develop socially, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and that they develop wherever they spend time. My son, uh, my fourth grader, he goes to school at 8 a.m., He's a part of the school-based after-school program that I pick him up at 6 p.m. That means that my kid during the school year is in his school building from 8 in the morning 
until six o'clock at night. During that time, he is going to have experiences that are highly social, that are highly emotional. And those adults are doing so much of the caretaking and raising of my kid. They're getting him for the majority of his working hours. And I'm relying on them to coach him and to support him in learning social skills and emotional skills. So I think to first lay the groundwork here, we have on the one hand, what are the social and emotional developmental milestones that kids hit as they are going through school? And how can schools and classrooms and teachers support kids as they are learning? On the other hand, learning itself, the science of learning is hugely social and emotional. And so much of the conditions for learning rely on social connections and experiences that evoke emotion. So then you have these social emotional learning programs. And if you think about this like a Venn diagram, sometimes social emotional learning programs really overlap and support the social emotional health and wealth and growth of our kids. But they're not always fantastic. I have seen them done really well, and I have seen them done very poorly. They kind of remind me of like when you were, we talked in the last episode about citizenship of like health class or driver's education, these kind of like one credit or couple credit classes that get all kinds of things jammed into them, life skills and all kinds of things. Um, In my own children's lives, even though I have been involved nationally in social emotional learning for years, I have been pretty disappointed with some of the SEL, I'm putting air quotes, folks can't see me, SEL programs that they've experienced. One which is called Caring and Connected Communities, but my kid doesn't feel like he's a part of a caring or connected community. And so... In the middle of the spectrum, so on on the first side, what we were just talking about is how do we as educators and schools, homeschoolers, anybody who's educating kids support the social emotional growth and skill development of kids? What does that look like? What are the conditions that support it? In the middle are what are actual curriculums and programs called or dubbed social emotional learning or SEL, um, and what kinds of specific classes or experiences directly instruct kids on particular skills and supports. Now, this is where you get some gray. Now, on the far other side of the spectrum, you have the weaponization of an acronym or the use or misuse of that SEL time in school to do whatever, because often teachers don't have really strong support and training and professional development in how to use that time really well. And so what I would just kind of lay out for folks is where the culture wars became so toxic and really dangerous is that we're at a moment where young people are experiencing an unprecedented mental health crisis 
and being impacted in profound emotional ways. They have lost so many social health opportunities from multiple years in the pandemic, which has also compromised their learning because learning is social and emotional. There has never been a more important time to support the social and emotional development and skill development of kids. But we've also taken this three-letter acronym and weaponized it as the next CRT. And there are folks on both sides of the aisle to blame here because when that happened, there were people who kind of dug their heels in and began defending the acronym and defending the programming wholesale without recognizing real limitations that those of us who've been in the work for a long time already knew existed. So much of what you're saying makes sense to me. I'm particularly struck by something that you started with, uh, acknowledging that SEL practices are not always practiced well. And I mean, that's true of anything. Uh, You know, the way people teach kids to read or to do mathematics or social studies, um, there's some techniques and some people that just don't do it very well. But it's not necessarily a reason to construct an indictment about uh, teachers in general or about certain practices. Stephanie, I want to go on and just have you respond to Jennifer Williams from Purple for Parents, Indiana. And she said, these programs, SEL programs, are designed to influence our children's behavior in the name of social justice. These activities desensitize our children to accept all ideas and all lifestyles as normal, regardless of what family morals they might have. And I, I want to get your your take on that. And 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 then I want to just read something. Uh, maybe I'll read it now from your book and to see if this is something that people like um, Jennifer McWilliams from Indiana are concerned with. Um, this is in a section of your book called Civic Engagement and Socio-Political Development. You write, experiences with violence, oppression, suppression, trauma, tragedy, and disaster poison children's well-being and jeopardize their development. Young people deserve supports and skills to solve the problems that hurt them. We can help them learn to use their gifts, stories, and experiences for good. Becoming a force for good is profoundly powerful. It moves young people from being passive and feeling helpless to becoming active agents in their own healing and transformation. And I just wonder if that's the kind of education uh, that that uh, that young pe- people, that, that, that someone like uh, Jennifer McWilliams might think, think is a, a way of promoting or sort of engaging in left-wing indoctrination. Maybe. But the question is also what is supporting the regular developmental tasks of what it means to grow up. And so when we look at the brain science of adolescence, we know that from 11 all the way to your mid-20s, some of the primary questions um, that young people are asking and exploring, and it's how they're learning and it's how they're developing, are who am I? Where do I belong? What do I believe in? What do I agree with? 
And so as educators, we have a responsibility to create structures and situations where they can explore those questions. And we should do it as navigators and facilitators and not um, imposing necessarily our, our own beliefs and morals. I do believe that there are situations where teachers and educators may find themselves in a scenario where their own moral beliefs get in the way of supporting an individual student. When and if that happens, I think it's the responsibility of the adult if they're not in a place to reconsider their belief um, or interrogate it, to actually remove themselves from the situation. It keeps that young person safe because the young person by design is exploring who they are and what they believe and what their identity is. So for as much as we see people, parents, politicians, others wanting to take, for example, identity development out of school, it doesn't matter if a child is being public schooled, private schooled, homeschooled, parochial schooled, or unschooled. Identity development is a core part of what it means to be a tween and what it means to be a teen. We can't remove that part from happening, but we can put in conditions and situations that enable them to explore it. I think that our job as educators is to create a space where young people are able to feel safe and secure in who they are and in the spaces that they're exploring and inhabiting so that they can come in and learn and have stability and security in their learning environment. They can bring their full selves in. Again, we talked in the first episode about these whole life practices and community and belonging is one of the strongest ones of all. It also relates a lot to mental health. But as it relates to justice issues, I think that one of the most powerful things about this group of kids is that these big global issues have become personal and proximate, and they can be very concerning and very scary. But when we figure out ways to teach them how to be active in solution making, then we give them a liberated sense of self that maybe they can actually make the world better and good, and they can solve some of these problems that are hurting them and the people they love which takes us all the way then back to SEL and FEL programming. So when I go in to work with the state or community, I always ask how important is the language to you? To what are you defending by continuing to call it social emotional learning or SEL? And if they're far enough down the road and people sort of know that here's what belongs in the box of social emotional learning, it might be more damaging to change the language than not, but it reminds me of the early days years ago when competency-based education was first on the rise. And we used to say, you are competency-based if you say you are competency-based. Um, and there was a research phenomenon that you might remember from professor days, and it was called the jingle jangle fallacy. And I'm going to get this wrong, but I think jingle was you and I are saying the same thing, but we mean something different. 
in Django was you and I are saying different things, but we actually mean the same thing. And so there's this real rhetoric language issue that can get away from the real fundamental work of helping kids learn and develop and become good humans and have good lives. In my perspective, social emotional learning is learning. It should be unbundled and integrated into everything that kids are doing. It shouldn't be a set aside time. You might have set aside times for advisories or homerooms or projects or civics that are more rich in the expression of social skills and emotional skills and supports, but you should never relegate it to one particular spot. And that's the same for learning to be good humans and learning to be good citizens and taking on challenging problems. I want to just add something to that, that nice analysis you gave about what's going on. And it, first of all, it just reminds me once again that promoting something like educating for the whole child or social emotional learning um, can be done well and it can be done poorly. And when it's done poorly, is that because people have bad agendas or is it they weren't adequately prepared? But it it's unfortunate when groups form and point fingers and say there's a conspiracy here that educators as a group uh, are promoting a certain political agenda. And I, I, I go back to something that Peter Coleman from Columbia told me in my interview with him about the culture wars. And he said that much of what is happening in the culture wars is really being promoted by what he referred to as outside agitators. And uh, Amanda Ripley, who I also interviewed, referred to them as kind of conflict entrepreneurs, people who are for political or financial gain or self-interest are essentially manufacturing crises in local communities, deliberately instilling fear among people that and, and trying to pit one another against each other for their own gains. And um, but I, I just I, I want to just conclude uh, our conversation with the thought I have about my hope for the future. And I and I, I wonder what you think about this. But I I truly believe that if people across the political spectrum in schools and local communities come together and agree to turn down the volume and have civil conversations and really listen to one another without outside agitators in the mix, that they will find common ground. They'll have healthy disagreements from time to time, but will ultimately agree on ways to best serve the interests of, of all of their students. And I wonder if you support that idea that I have about that. I want to take you quickly into my community. So my community has um, changed demographically and politically throughout the pandemic, um, but we're a small community in the Midwest and collectively love our kids. And it has been so powerful, hard in so many moments, but powerful to live here and to wrestle with the ideas that have made us feel so different. And yet in everything that matters with the kids, when we're on, you know, at sports games, when we're on field trips, when we're in the school building together, when we're doing play dates, the common ground is so present, but there are big ideas that end up causing real harm 
And when the ideas get exchanged, sometimes kids end up in the middle. So for example, my two boys are monitored for a genetic health condition that made the pandemic extra scary for us. And my mom moved in with us. And we lived in a community that was very anti-mask and very keep the community open, anti-vaccine. And all the boys heard each day was, why does my community want me to die? Why does the school want me to die? Because the common compassion that I knew was there never came out in the articles or in the conversations or the school board meetings. They It didn't start with, we know that there are families who are having an especially hard time and it's scary because of health risks or whatever else. It immediately went to these political ideas and these dividing lines. And so as we move forward into the future, and I spend a lot of time thinking about the future and forecasting, I talk about it in Whole Child, Whole Life. One of the best things we can do is just to teach our kids to be as human as possible and that that human connection and cultivating empathy and deep listening and learning and curiosity and staying open are crucial skills um, and their lives depend on it. And so the last thing that I'll say here as we wrap up the social emotional learning piece is that I actually do believe fully and factually that there are individuals who are hired and paid to try and cause dissent and division in local communities. And that if I was a bad guy and I was looking at a long game multi-generational strategy, one of the best ways to take down and break down a democracy or a neighborhood or nation would be to really mess up its kids. And in this moment, our kids need social and emotional support more than they ever have before. And if we allow confusion and contempt to get in the way of providing those supports and removing those supports from the places where they spend the most time, we are engaging in life-threatening practices. And so before we do that, it's worth the risk and the discomfort of coming together to figure out what we actually mean when we talk about social emotional development, when we talk about social emotional learning. Beautifully said. And uh, I myself have come and state what you said so eloquently in, in sort of a short version of it, which is that that I think there is no greater threat to all of us in our communities, our schools, in our families, our relationships, even our country, than our inability or unwillingness to come together and be respectful and civil towards each other and to listen to one another. Because if we can't do that, uh, it, we can't. There's really no problem we can solve. Uh, so it is what Peter Coleman refers to as a first order problem, and I think you and I were both coming at it. And, and expressing our concern about that. But but I, I, I leave with a sense of hope because as you refer to, there's this incredible sense of common ground. And, 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 and yet in media, that's not the story they want to write about. They want to write about conflict because that's what gets clicks and that's what gets people to pay attention to uh, the television, social media, and, and mainstream media. But I think if we stand up and insist on... Uh, and reminding ourselves that what we're ultimately af after is um, communities and relationships that 
that work for us and, and remember what our common ground is all about. So with that, Stephanie, I want to thank you so much for being part of courageous conversations uh, about our schools and congratulations on the uh, the release of your new book, Whole Child, Whole Life. So thanks so much, Stephanie. Thanks so much, Ken. And if folks want to learn more about the book, they can just go to wholechildwholelife.com. And that's also a good way to get in contact with me. Fantastic. Well, you will find this episode and all of our episodes of Courageous Conversations about our schools at schoolconversations.org and on your favorite podcasting platforms. Bye, everyone.